You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. I think as we get to this time of the year, we're all looking for a little reprieve, uh, perhaps a little break from uh, the cold and the weariness of it all. Uh, But it is... Uh, It's in the story of Noah that we also find people looking for rest, looking for reprieve. Um, It's not from the gloominess of of February, but it's from the weariness of their labor. The background, uh, before we jump back into the text, is in Genesis chapter 5, as it tells the story of Noah's birth. In verse 29, it says that Noah's father called him Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord has cursed this one out of the Lord, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. The word relief is also the word for rest. The, the people of Noah's day, his own family included, were people that were looking for a little bit of rest. They wanted some reprieve from the weariness of their labor, from the weariness of their work, perhaps even the weariness that they felt spiritually. But as we read through what takes place in uh, Genesis 6 through chapter 8, uh, specifically today as we look at the flood, we see that though people were longing for rest, what they ultimately needed was rescue. Uh, the, the truest rest that we could ever have is found in being rescued from our sin. And Noah's birth marks this hope of finding rest. This hope of finding rest from the judgment of sin and from and through the gracious provision of God. That's that's what we see in Noah's uh, life and in particularly as God brings about the flood and spares Noah. And so as we come to, to Genesis 6, uh, 9 through chapter 8, we'll go through verse 19. This is a familiar passage and uh, just to, uh, to kind of set up its context, I think... Uh, popularly or socially, especially within Christian circles, uh, this sometimes can get reduced down to the song that we sing with our kids. Uh, my, my kids uh, love the Cedarmont Kids. Um, you can find it on YouTube. And, um, and I, honestly, I watch the Cedarmont Kids um, songs and the videos they put together, and I think to myself, I missed an opportunity uh, to have a decent side hustle because with just a little bit of extra work, you could have made a better video. Um, but my kids are mesmerized by it. Like, you know, there, there is like something about it. Like when you put the songs on, they're like, they're, they just know them by heart and sing along. And then because they're listening to them incessantly, you get them in your head. And, you know, Noah built an arky arky. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Let's be glad and rejoice in it. But as you sing that song, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can go look it up because I'm not going to attempt to sing any more for you. Um, it talks, it almost kind of, it's easy for the story of Noah and the flood to kind of be sanitized and, and kind of uh, made to this kind of G version uh, story that uh, is kind of neat and cute and that we sing with the kids and, and off we go. But it's actually a picture uh, of God's judgment along with his salvation. It's good news. Like, tell your kids the story of the flood. I'm not trying to, uh, to dismiss our need to do that, but it isn't like Noah was building the arky arky and telling the little children to get out of the muddy muddy. You know, like, it wasn't like that. Uh, the people uh, had corrupted their own way, and violence filled the earth, and God 
God finds favor, shows favor to one man, to Noah and his family, and spares him through the waters of judgment, saves Noah and his family, and brings judgment upon all of humanity and all of creation. And so I want us today to, to dig in, and in just a moment we're going to see four main points from the text, but to also to deal with the story of the flood in our day, also means that we have to deal with some problems uh, that the flood presents up front. And those two problems are the historicity of the flood and the scope of the flood. Um, So is the flood history or is the flood myth? Uh, Some people point uh, to the amount of flood narratives in ancient Near Eastern cultures as reason to not believe the flood. And some of the stories, uh, the most uh, Uh, common or most familiar you might be with is the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, Some of the stories are quite sensational, um, and uh, they in in many ways diverge from what we see in the Bible, which is very much grounded in uh, in some very specific instructions that God gives Noah um, and some very, uh, at least, plausible uh, events that unfold. But there's up to 68 different flood narratives And like I said, some of them are sensational, um, and there are similarities across uh, those narratives, even with the Bible. Um, And some people point to that and say, well, these can't be true. There's too many of them, and some of them being so sensational that it must be a myth. But I actually think rather than the amount of uh, uh, narratives that there are in ancient Near Near Eastern culture, rather than that discrediting the flood account of Genesis, it actually gives credibility to that because there's a shared and collective experience that happened or memory of what happened uh, that, that is spoken of. And, and what you often see is that it's not ultimately that myths are historized, but it's often history that's mythologized, if you will. It's the, the events that actually happen that take on a, a larger-than-life experience. And I think that's what happens with stories like the Epic of Gilgamesh and others. Uh, and what we have in the Bible, based upon the, uh, the really what we see starting in Genesis 1 throughout, is we have a historical narrative unfolding. You remember we talked about the structure of Genesis last week, that little phrase, the generations of, uh, that start in, uh, even as we read today in Genesis uh, 6-9, these are the generations of Noah, and, and back in chapter 4, these are the generations, chapter 5, verse 1, the generations of Adam, back in chapter 2, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. There's this, there's this um, intentional historical account that's unfolding throughout uh, the book of Genesis, and the flood is no different. Um, it's presented as, as historical fact and the reality of other shared narratives or common commonalities uh, with other narratives proves to the point uh, that these events, the underlying events, actually occurred. And even those who discount here in a minute as we talk about the scope of the flood, a universal flood, most people say no doubt a flood happened. Uh, you can't deny it based upon how much, um, how much evidence we see as it relates to these other ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, including the Bible. So, so we have the historicity of the flood, that it's not myth, that it's history. Uh, that's consistent with what we see throughout Genesis. But the, uh, perhaps the, the pressing question of many people is, what is the scope of the flood? Is it universal or is it regional? Um, <clears throat> meaning, was it local, localized as opposed to covering the, the whole earth? Uh, the, the universal argument has historically been the argument of the church and our understanding of the Bible. And I think there's a number of reasons uh, that it is uh, the strongest argument. We have the, the use of the language throughout this passage. It talks about the whole earth multiple times. Now, 
in Hebrew, earth and land are the same word. They can be used interchangeably depending on context. You can be talking about the land of Egypt or the, the earth, uh, the whole world. Um, and so while that's true throughout, there's this emphasis on all um, uh, that it speaks of uh, all uh, flesh, all the world, all the creatures that had the breath of life in them. Everything that's on the earth uh, shall die. We see this kind of universal language throughout. We also see the phrase under all the heavens. This statement is uh, used six times and uh, six other times uh, throughout the Bible. And, and really uh, all but one have a universal meaning, uh, a holistic uh, universal meaning. The way the, the passage talks about uh, all of life being, being judged and blotted out. It says in verse 17, all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven will be blotted out. Everything that's on the earth shall die. If you skip down to verses 21 through 23 in chapter 7, uh, God reiterating this at this point in the text says, All flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and livestock and beasts and all the swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and creeping thing and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who are with him in the ark. The language is pretty universal. The uh, fact that God makes a covenant with Noah, we'll look at this in depth next week. But God establishes his covenant with Noah and, and all the animals that he saved with all the creation that were spared through the ark. So if the flood isn't universal, then the covenant isn't universal uh, because they are tied together. Uh, the God who makes the covenant uh, is making it with all of humanity um, and all the animals as well. And so if the flood is regional, um, then we look at the rainbow and we don't have hope that it's for all, uh, at least uh, all of the animals uh, who, who were spared from the flood if it were regional. Uh, the, then as we zoom out in the Bible, the flood in Genesis 6 and 8 is used as a, as a reference point for the future judgment of God. That just as it was in the days of Noah, God is going to bring judgment a second time, a final time, um, when Jesus returns. And so uh, how can one be regional and the other be universal is the question uh, as it relates to the future judgment of God. And then even most people who reject a universal uh, idea of a flood would agree that the Bible presents itself as saying it is a universal flood. Uh, the face value of the text as you read throughout it, as I've read in chapter 7 and as well as some in chapter 6, presents itself as being universal in scope. Now, on the other side of it, there are many uh, who still uphold, and uh, just as we do at TCC, that we're people under authority, uh, that God's word is our final authority. God's word is true and trustworthy. We say it's inerrant and inspired, that it's God-breathed by the Holy Spirit through human authors. God's delivered his word to us. This isn't man's attempt to figure out God. It's God's revelation of himself to us. So upholding that standard uh, of truth regarding the Bible, some would say uh, that the language that's used here, the universal sounding language is used elsewhere in the Bible in a limited way, in a limited capacity. Uh, so for example, in Genesis 41, 56 through 57, as it talks about the famine, uh, it says that there was a famine over all the earth. 
and all the earth came to Egypt uh, to buy grain from Joseph. And, and so most would say uh, that that's not speaking of literally every nation came from everywhere to Egypt to buy grain, but that's speaking of a, a lot of people. The famine was widespread and a lot of people came. In Deuteronomy 2.25, God says that he will make all the peoples under the whole of heaven fear Israel. Um, most would say that God speaking to, uh, to the region in which they were, everywhere that Israel went, the people would know who their God was. And obviously, we know throughout Scripture uh, that that is now of uh, now today, as we see the universal scope of Scripture being made known, people know that to be true. But in its context, it was referring to a more limited capacity. And honestly, the, the biggest challenge as it relates to the universal scope of the flood is the ge- geological record uh, and just how we make sense of the current geological evidence uh, that that even most believing scientists would say doesn't support a universal flood, but perhaps speaks to a regional uh, flood. And closely connected to the geological evidence is the diversity of animal life and the number of animals brought on the, earth, on the ark. And so some would say from a geological perspective, a universal flood could only be explained by a miracle in which the suspension of the laws of nature, which is the definition of a miracle, uh, took place and that the scientific development within geology can't fully make sense of what happened. Um, And so uh, I think as we we sort through it, I, I see the evidence of a universal flood being the most consistent with what I read in the Bible. And yet I don't check my brain at the door. And when I hear about the geological evidence, I go, well, that's interesting. I don't quite know how to uh, fit those things fully together. And I think it is true that there is a sense in which the flood, though God used rain as it speaks of, no doubt has to be, if it's universal in scope, wiping out all of creation and judging all of humanity, no doubt has to be miraculous. Uh, even though God used the very ordinary means of 40 days and 40 rain, 40 days and 40 nights to flood the earth, it, it no doubt was something that he, he did once and said he won't do again uh, and is something that only God could do. And as we look at it from our vantage point today and we go, well, there was, it was 40 days of rain and that would only fill up this much and the mountains at that time were this high. And so how could the water get over all of the mountains as it says in the text and the animals that spread out, how do we get this many species from here to there? There, there are questions that, that I think we have to press into and, and look at honestly. Uh, but uh, I think we would have to say that the universal, uh, the scope of the flood being universal makes sense of the plain reading of the text is also makes sense of a God uh, who created the world in many ways recreated the world through the flood. And so the same God who creates is the same God judging in Genesis 6 through 9 and ultimately recreating. I mentioned this book early on in our studies. This is a book called The 40 Questions on Creation and Evolution by two, uh, two authors, Ken Keithley and Mark Rooker. Um, <clears throat> I think this book is super helpful. If you wrestle with these kind of questions, uh, what I presented here is a summary of uh, two chapters in their book uh, as they break down the flood and whether or not it was universal or regional. Um, <clears throat> I think this is a, a great resource. If you have questions about this, uh, I think they're even-handed and faithful to the scriptures. Uh, both of them are professors at the seminary I'm currently a student at. 
their summary on, on the flood, uh, the scope of the flood is this. They say, biblically, the local flood model is a reasonable interpretation through a natural reading, though a natural reading seems to be more given, um, gives more weight to a global uh, scope of the flood. Geologically, the evidence argues for the local flood interpretation. Um, meaning that in that region, uh, what's known as the region of the seas, the Mediterranean Sea, the Black Sea, the Caspian Sea, there's two other seas that are in that region, that it's known to flood, and the local argument would be that it flooded. That's where all of humanity lived. So all of humanity died, and all of the animals in that region were safely brought through the ark, is what someone who argues for a local flood would say. Global flood and local flood adherents, they go on to say, do agree on one important point. Noah's flood happened. It is a historical fact. The flood in Genesis was a visitation of the judgment of God on the people of the earth. All humans except for Noah and his family perished. The events give warning of the coming final judgment. And Noah's deliverance serves as an example of the riches of God's saving grace. So what must we believe about the flood? Uh, these, these kind of break down in this next slide, I think, the basic foundational truths. The flood happened. The flood came about because of the sinfulness of humanity. The flood was a means of God's judgment on all of humanity. That I don't think we can escape. Even if you take a localized version, God makes clear that he recreates and restarts with Noah and his family, that all of humanity perishes um, except Noah and his family. And the flood points forward to God's future judgment and salvation. And so as uh, Christians, uh, we can look at the text and wrestle with these things. And there are uh, sometimes people who come out on different sides uh, of especially the scope of the flood. Uh, but these things are the fundamental truths that we can't deny based upon reading what takes place in Genesis 6 through chapter 8. So now that we've got the fun stuff taken care of. What, what, do, what does God want us to take away from Genesis 6 through 8? Four things. <clears throat> I want us to see a portrait of faithful courage. We saw last week that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was shown grace by God. And it says that Noah, in verse 9, was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he walked with God. The... the the concept, concept of walking with God we saw with Enoch back in, in chapter 5. It, it was reflective of, of what it meant to live by faith. When you, when you read through Hebrews chapter 11, you see repeatedly uh, those who walked by faith and were commended by God. To walk by faith was to trust in his provision and to obey his commands. That's the picture of faithfulness. But I also think in Noah it's important to see a picture of courage, of faithful courage, because Noah walks with God when no one else was. You see how it contrasts Noah in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 6 with the rest of humanity. In verse 11, the earth was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. And God saw the earth. And this, this language, it, was, it happened back in uh, chapter uh, verse 5 of chapter 6 as well. It reminds us of creation when it said that God saw his creation and it was very good. But now because sin has, has grown and fully given birth and has brought about death and violence, God sees the earth this time and says, Behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. 
And so in response to the sinfulness of man, God says in verse 13 that he's going to bring judgment and he's going to destroy with the earth all of humanity by the flood. And then in verses 14 through the remainder of chapter 6, he gives instructions for Noah about how to build the ark. Uh, And it's massive. Uh, And today in Uh, I believe it's in Kentucky. There's a place called the Ark Encounter. You can go and see a life-sized replica of Noah's Ark. Um, And I think when I originally read this the first time as a believer, I'm like, you know, this is a good-sized boat, you know, like, but this thing's massive. You know, a cubit is 18 inches. And so it talks about, um, it talks about this was 300 cubits. And so 450 feet um, and, and it's, uh, and its length and its breadth was 50 cubits. Its height's 30 cubits. It gives instructions about making the roof and making the different, uh, le- the different layers of the, uh, of the ark and, uh, and talks about how, to, um, how God is going to bring on the ark all of Noah's family and God's going to bring onto the ark all of these living creatures and two pairs all according to their kind, male and female, even making provision for sacrifices to be made later by bringing on seven uh, of those that are clean animals and and only two of those that are unclean animals. We've already seen God's people calling on the name of the Lord, offering sacrifices to God. Uh, And God even makes provision for future worship that we see that Noah does in in chapter 8, verse 20. But in in all of this, we see that Noah, if you look at the end of of chapter 6, verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. That refrain is repeated again in chapter 7. If you uh, allow your eyes to fall down to chapter 7, verse 5, after it speaks of of the time coming where God said to Noah, go into the ark, all of you and your household. Um, I've seen that you're righteous before me. And then it says that he used to take in with him the animals. And apparently God brings the animals to the ark. It wasn't like Noah was a, you know, uh, Steve Irwin, like going out and gathering up all the animals and bringing them in. But God brings the animals to the ark. And it says, again, Noah did all that God commanded him. The picture of, of Noah is trusting in God's provision. God made known to him the judgment that was to come and that he was going to provide an ark. And then he obeyed God's commands. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says that by faith, Noah, being warned by, God's, warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for saving his household and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. You see, Genesis 6 places Noah along the likes of, uh, of Daniel and Zerubbabel who trusted God in the face of opposition and even persecution. We're not told that Noah was persecuted. We're not told that uh, anybody opposed his building of the ark. No doubt, at least his sons had to help him build the ark. Uh, Perhaps others were enlisted in that work as well. But it's clear that God's estimation of the rest of humanity is that they were corrupt and filled with violence, whereas Noah walked with God in faithful courage. I think uh, it's important for us to remember that Noah is a portrait, as I've said, of faithful courage, but he's not the source for us to be faithful and for us to be courageous. You see, we grow in faithful courage by walking with God. We grow in faithful courage by trusting God. 
we grow in faithful courage by having a bigger view of who God is, not a bigger view of who we are and our abilities. You understand that? As, as believers, our, our faithfulness and our courage doesn't come from convincing ourselves that we're better than we think we are. Our ability to walk in faithfulness and courage comes from us looking to God and knowing that He is able. Knowing that He is greater. And knowing that we can trust Him even when we're afraid. Knowing that He's faithful even when we're opposed. So we can stand strong in Him. We can take the next step of obedience. It was a hundred years of building the ark. Noah it was 500 years when his children were born. He was 600, it says, when the ark, um, when he was closed into the ark by the Lord. A hundred years of, uh, of obeying God, of doing this endless work without any ability to know how is this big thing going to get up uh, in the water? Uh, how is this going to take place? That's a picture of faithful courage, but Noah isn't the source of it. And that's important for us as we, as we walk in faithful courage to know that God is the source of our faithfulness and our courage. And we find it by walking with him despite fear and despite opposition. Uh, that's a good word for us, even in our day, uh, as we think about how to follow God, um, even when others around us perhaps don't. Not only do we see this portrait of faithful courage, but we see a display of God's character. In two ways, we see throughout the flood that God is a holy judge and that God is a gracious Savior. Up front, we see God's holiness because humanity's corruption is not in comparison to Noah. Right? Like as God looks at humanity, he doesn't go, everybody's corrupt in comparison to Noah. He says, everybody's corrupt in comparison to my holiness. See, sin isn't, in, isn't viewed in comparison to other people. Sometimes we do that in a dismissive way of our sin, right? Like, my sin isn't as bad as their sin. Well, that's easy. For us, we can always find somebody who has a little bit more outwardly evident sin, perhaps, than us. But God views our sin in, not in comparison uh, horizontally, but in comparison vertically to Him and His holiness. And it says that they were corrupt in all the earth. And then it says He's going to bring judgment and he makes it twice here in chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 12. He speaks of the judgment that he's going to bring. And I read earlier in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. And he uses this, this strong language. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animal and created things. Nothing was left but Noah and those who are with him in the ark. This is the language that that David uses when he asks God to create in him a clean heart. Blot out my transgressions and my iniquity. Take it away. Remove it completely. God as a holy judge cannot look at sin and allow it to go on indefinitely without judgment. Judgment is the necessary follow through for the holiness of God. For God to be holy, he must judge. We looked at it last week and said that, honestly, we all want God to be a holy judge. It just gets more personal when God's a holy judge about our sin. But not only is a holy judge, he's a gracious savior. 
I love the, the picture. We, we obviously see God comes to Noah and finds favor with him. And though Noah walked with God, it wasn't because he walked with God that he was shown grace. He's shown grace and in response, he walks with him and is blameless in his generation. But it says in all of this, God instructs Noah to build the ark, which he does in faithful obedience to God. But it says in chapter 7, verse 16, that when the time came and Noah got into the ark with his family and all the animals got onto the ark, It says, and the Lord shut them in. Who shut the door of the ark? It was God who shut the door. It was God who closed up the ark, which was the very vessel of salvation for Noah and his family. God is both a holy judge and a gracious savior. And and this idea, I want you, I, I say this in some ways, somewhat repetitive for what we looked at last week, but I say this because it's so, so fundamental to who God is. In Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, if you write, write that down, here's, here's some homework for you if you like Bible homework. <clears throat> Exodus 34, 6 through 7. Just search uh, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 and see how many times Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7 is repeated throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. See how many times it gets quoted by later authors after Moses as they keep referring back to this fundamental revelation of God. Moses wanted, to, wanted God to reveal himself to him. He pleads with God for God to reveal himself to him. And God reveals himself in this way. When Moses asks, who are you, God? This is what God says. He says, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the, the personal covenantal name of God the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. A gracious Savior. And yet He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. A holy judge. Throughout the Scriptures, God is holy and God is gracious. These two things are not, it's, it's not one or the other. Sometimes we're like vengeful and we only want a holy God who judges everybody. All those crazy, wicked sinners that are making trouble in our lives. We want God to judge people. And then sometimes we, we just like, let's just ease up a little bit. It's February, all right? Let's all love. Let everybody love everyone. God is love. That's true. God is love. And yet as the angels gather around in Revelation and as they sing to God and they proclaim who God is, what is the consistent refrain that, 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 that echoes throughout heaven? Holy, holy, holy. God is holy, unstained, untouched by sin, cannot allow sin to go unpunished and, and yet without contradiction. God is gracious and steadfast in love. You'll never find a God. You'll never find another person who loves you like God. I tell my kids when I tuck them in at night, Daddy loves you, but God loves you more. There's not a God. There's not a person that can love you more than God. And yet that same gracious and loving God is holy and just. And in our day, we're tempted to make God in our own image. We're tempted to choose one or the other. 
fashioning God according to our own liking, having a God who never pushes back against our beliefs and our behavior is a surefire sign that we have a version of God that's made in our own image. You see, God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain and he walks down and Aaron had had put together the gold and had put together a, a golden calf that the people said, we don't know where that dude Moses is, so let's just get ourselves to God and get on with, with worship and have it a good time. And, and Moses comes down and he's like, what happened? And Aaron's like, I just took some gold and stuff and like, bam, like this came out. Uh, it's this picture of God's revealing himself to Moses on the mountain to come down and tell the people And the people, not wanting to wait for God to reveal himself, wanting a God that they can see and touch and make according to their own liking, they say to Aaron, make us a God. We don't care who it is. We just want something to look at. We just want something to see. And that's the temptation of humanity throughout all of history to fashion God in our own liking. And God says in Genesis 6, here is who I am, holy and just and gracious and merciful. Because God is just, uh, judge and holy judge and a gracious savior, he can do these things. He, he tells us of our sin. He tells us not to sin. He warns us of judgment on sin and on sinners. He warns us of his wrath and final judgment, as well as provides for our salvation, ultimately through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because God's holy and gracious, he also can tell us to repent and return to his faithful love and receive forgiveness. And then as believers in Christ, though we wrestle with sin and continue to try to put it off, he disciplines us so that we might put off our sins. These all flow out of a God who is holy and gracious. And if you're a grammar aficionado, I initially didn't put can, and so it all made sense, but then I put can, and I forgot to change the verb. So forgive me on that. But he can do these things for us. He, can, he, he lays out what's sin and what's not sin. He warns us of judgment and tells us to repent. He alone provides salvation as well as helps us to grow into his likeness. So in Genesis 6 through 8, we see a display of God's character, but we also see a picture of the gospel. See, we've skipped over the details of how the, how the ark was built and exactly how the animal comes in and the, the 40 days and 40 nights or how the water um, <clears throat> comes upon the earth and floods the earth. Chapter 8 tells us how the water subsides and Noah sends out a, a dove and the dove comes back because there's no tree to be found. And then eventually the dove comes back with a, a, a branch from the tree and we begin to see how the earth dries out and then God sends out Noah and his family. But in all, all that we have looked at, what we see continually is this picture of salvation through judgment. The gospel is salvation through judgment. We see it in Noah himself. <clears throat> you see, God saves humanity through the faithful obedience of one man while judging the rest of humanity. We also see this picture of salvation through judgment in the ark, that God graciously provides a means of rescue from the waters of judgment. That this picture that judgment is taking place and for there to be salvation, judgment has to happen. And this is the pattern from the Old Testament to the New. For, for forgiveness of sins to, uh, to, to take place in the Old Covenant, there had to be a sacrifice. The judgment fell upon the spotless lamb. 
The judgment fell upon the animal that was sacrificed. It wasn't that the animal was salvific. It was that they were trusting God to provide forgiveness and making the sacrifice. And it's in the New Testament, the New Covenant. That is the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all, for all time, for our sin. That judgment falls on Jesus so that salvation can come to us. We also see that the gospel is salvation by grace through faith. Genesis 6, 8 says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that he was shown grace by God. Without grace, there's no salvation. Salvation doesn't come. Forgiveness doesn't come to those who work, Paul says in Romans 4, but to those who receive what God has provided. If it was, if it was on the basis of our work, it would be a paycheck. Salvation would be a paycheck that God owed us. I punched the time clock, God. Give me my money. But it's nothing that we can earn. It's only what we can receive. And not only is, uh, is it by grace to receive it, it comes by faith. In Genesis 6, 13 through 14, God tells Noah of the judgment that's to come. And then as we've seen in, in the end of chapter 6 and, and chapter 7, verse 5, Noah obeys and by faith trusts God and does all that he says without faith. There's no salvation. It has to be received. Jesus said in John 1, we're walking through the Gospel of John uh, with our men on Saturdays, the fourth Saturday of the month in John 1, verse 12. Although he came to his own and they didn't receive him, to all who did receive him, to all who received him by faith, he gave the right to be called children of God. And ultimately, the Gospel we see here in Genesis 6-8 through is that it's pointing us forward to a picture of Jesus in our place. You see, in, in, in Noah's circumstance, God spared Noah from the flood of God's judgment. In Jesus' case, he bears the flood of God's judgment for us. He literally stands in our place as the picture of salvation. Jesus in our place. Four words that sum up the gospel well. And when we receive that by faith, what's amazing is that the gospel is Jesus in our place. What happens when we receive it is we find ourselves in Christ. We find ourselves standing in him. All the blessings and inheritance of Jesus come to us. It's credited to our account. This is how the Bible talks about justification. That when we trust in Christ, this is the spiritual work that God does in our hearts. It's not a miraculous thing where the heavens open and we see this take place. But in the eyes of God, we're united to Christ and we're made right with God. And when Christ, when God looks at us, he does not see us in our sin. He sees Christ in his perfect righteousness. He looks at us and, and not only gives us a clean slate. That's how sometimes we look at it. I'm forgiven. I've got a clean slate. Salvation is by grace through faith, but then we act like the Christian life is all about us uh, trying to do enough for God to be pleased with us. It's not that way at all. It's not just a clean slate. It's that we're given all the righteousness of Christ. Not just wiped clean, but given more than we could have ever imagined. Given the perfect record, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect righteousness of Jesus is what God sees when he looks at us. And it's interesting how the Bible takes this picture of the gospel and it, it says to us that baptism is a portrayal of the gospel in this way. Um, <clears throat> I almost didn't read this because it deserves a sermon on its own, but 1 Peter 3 makes this connection for us and um, raises a few questions. Uh, but 
Um, we've already tackled the, the scope of the flood, so what's another hard question? First um, Peter 3, verses 18 through 21. For Christ suffered once for sins on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, Jesus in our place, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the waters. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a, conscience, for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. You see the... The, the waters that are referred to here are speaking of the, the waters of judgment, how God brought Noah through the waters. And as Christians, we've come through the waters of God's judgment through faith in Christ and through trusting in him. And so our baptism points to, to ultimately how Jesus describes the cross as his baptism. He's going to be baptized is what he told his disciples and uh, with the baptism that took place on the cross. And so Christian baptism is identifying uh, with the judgment uh, that Jesus took in our place and Jesus' victory over it. It's us saying that we're in Jesus. We're identified with him. And we're reminded that God has pledged to bring us through the waters of judgment and raise us up to new life in Christ. And, and when it says that baptism now saves you, it's making this statement that the, the saving element isn't the waters uh, themselves. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, like it says in verse 21, but it's the appeal for a good conscience. It's the, it's the confession of faith in Christ and the appeal to God for a good conscience being made right with him. That is the saving element. Baptism is a sign pointing to the objective work of Christ that he's done for us that bears testimony to what God has done in us. You could say it this way, that it's a visible representation of the gospel and its effects in the life of God's people. This is why Romans 6 1 through 4 says, uh, it says, Paul's asking this question about continuing in sin. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? And the picture of the gospel is as the waters, as we stand in the waters, as we were buried with Christ in the likeness of his death, and we go under the waters, we're raised to walk in newness of life is the picture of the appeal to a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ, as it says in 1 Peter 3, 21. So we have this picture of the gospel that's in Genesis 6-8, through which uh, connects us to baptism, which is this testimony of what God has done in us, and we give a visual representation and profession of it to others as we're baptized in Christ. It's a beautiful picture that God has given us so that the gospel might be continually proclaimed, both in word and even in the, the ordinance that God has given the church, that we continually bear witness to this gospel as believers are baptized in Christ and as we take the Lord's Supper and, and proclaim his death until he returns. So we have this display of the gospel and then finally a preview of God's future judgment. We'll look more at God's covenant with Noah next week, but uh, here we see um, that, the, that God promises, or there we'll see that God promises not to judge the earth in the same way again. But in the, in the New Testament, when it refers back to the flood, it does so in order to help us to understand God's future judgment. Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 
uh, through 39, says it this way. Concerning the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus tells us in his own words that judgment's coming. And he says we know judgment is coming. The picture that we should have in our minds is, is Noah. And though God says he won't judge the, the earth again by, by means of a flood, in the future it will be by means of a fire. So it's not water coming this time, but the judgment is just as sure. <clears throat> and just as God is holy and just and gracious and loving, we see that just as judgment will come, so salvation comes by grace through faith. Salvation comes. Jesus warns us of judgment because he's holy and he's gracious. It's a gracious thing that God would warn us. But he also makes provision for our rescue. And just as it was in the days of Noah, the means of our rescue is made out of wood. Not an ark, but a cross. That's the means of rescue for all those who have eyes to see and hearts to respond to Christ. That a... It's Jesus in our place on the cross. The only way we escape God's judgment to come is to take refuge in God's only son. We all want rest and reprieve, not only from the bleakness of February, but from the weariness of living with our own sin and living in a sin-stained world. And God graciously tells us that we find it in Christ. We find it in his perfect work on our behalf. And today as um, Becca and Victor come to close us out, we're going to sing a song called Rock of Ages. And and I was thinking about this this week and just how fitting it is as a conclusion. The song says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. That's our response today. As as a believer, I I just want you to rejoice in a God who sees you, who provided for your salvation, who's rescued you through the waters of judgment, who's brought you to himself. And and perhaps as we sing this song, if you are wrestling with what it means to know and follow Christ, the invitation of the song will be the invitation that you receive. Hide yourself in him. Salvation is simply knowing you're in need and running to the one who can help you. Hide yourself in Christ. He not only allows us to escape judgment, but he ensures that we experience life, both now and forever. Let's pray.